0: This message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. At the end, we will give information about how to contact us to receive a copy of this or other messages. All right, well, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to read the the, um, whole section again so that we have the context in mind 1 Corinthians chapter 2 we start in verse 6 this is God's inspired word Paul says yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature a wisdom however not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood for if they had understood it they would not have crucified the lord of glory but just as it is written things which eye is not seen and ear is not heard and which have not entered the heart of man all that god has prepared for those who love him for to us god revealed them through the spirit for the spirit searches all things even the deep things of god For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Well, as we've... Uh, started digging into this section, it's actually quite important in the development of Paul's argument with the Corinthians. And in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, we saw the origin of wisdom. And again, I, it just bears repeating, and that is that the wisdom that Paul is talking about is not the wisdom that is from this world. The wisdom that Paul's talking about is actually nothing less than the revelation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. And so, when Paul's talking positively about wisdom, he's not talking about some esoteric knowledge out there, some secret knowledge. He's talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so he talks about the origin of that wisdom in 6 through 9, and then, as we saw last week, the revelation of that wisdom. And, of course, here's Paul's um, main point, is that it is the Spirit of God who has revealed this wisdom from God to us. Paul actually draws an analogy that we looked at in detail last week, and the point of the analogy is that it is only the Spirit of God who knows the mind of God, and it is the Spirit of God who has searched the depths of God's mind, and so there's a sense in which, as we put it, uh, God is known through God alone, and so the Spirit then, in turn, um then reveals those things to Paul and those who were proclaiming the gospel. Paul calls it the things graciously given to us by God. And so the Spirit is the revealer, and, uh, and, and he reveals the wisdom of God. He reveals the message of the cross. He reveals the message of Christ. And then what Paul turns around and says is that, is that we actually... We actually speak these things that have been revealed by the Spirit. So there's actually a pretty neat uh, progression. So the message, the revelation of the wisdom of God originates with God. It then comes through the Spirit, and then Paul, then by the Spirit, proclaims or teaches those things. And so, in a sense, if we think about it in terms of our Bibles, we have divine revelation and then divine inspiration, right? And so, here's Paul, and he says we speak those things, and in a sense, what he's doing is he's returning to a theme that he's already touched on, actually emphasized, and that is, what are we about? We're about preaching Christ and Him crucified, We're about preaching the very wisdom of God. We're about preaching the word of the cross. And how do we do that? We do that by the Spirit. And then uh, in in verse 13, the idea is is that we explain the things of the Spirit, that is, those things which have been freely given to us by God, by means of words taught by the Spirit. And, and, And Paul, of course, contrasts that with words of human wisdom. So it is a message that comes by the Spirit. It is a message which is empowered by the Spirit. And it is a message which, in a sense, is explained by God's servants who are empowered by the Spirit. All right. So the Holy Spirit is, is really the, uh, in a sense, the focal point in this, in this passage. And uh, I've said before, I would never, ever preach another sermon ever again if I did not believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because apart from the power of the Spirit, we cannot know the things of God. And so, Paul then presses on, and this last paragraph in this section, verses 4 through 16, um, I, I put this lengthy quote in your notes for you. This is from Gordon Fee, and, and what's interesting about this uh, about this paragraph is that Gordon Fee, who is a, a really an outstanding New Testament scholar, also comes from the Pentecostal tradition, and Fee writes about verses 14 through 16. He says, this paragraph has endured a most unfortunate history of application in the church. Paul's own point has been almost totally lost in favor of an interpretation that is nearly 180 degrees the opposite of his. Almost every form of spiritual elitism, deeper life movement, and second blessing doctrine has appealed to this text. To receive the Spirit according to their special expression paves the way for people to know deeper truths about God. One special brand of this elitism surfaces among those who have pushed the possibilities of, quote, faith to the extreme and regularly make a special revelation from the spirit their final court of appeal. Other lesser brothers and sisters are simply living below their full privileges in Christ. Indeed, some advocates of this form of spirituality bid fair to repeat the Corinthian error in its totality. What is painful about so much of this is not simply the improper use of this passage, but that so often it is accompanied by atoning down of the message of the cross, which lies at the very heart of this passage. In fact, one is hard-pressed to hear the content of God's wisdom ever expounded as the paradigm for truly Christian living. So if Paul's not giving us the secret to the higher life or a second blessing or uh, how to know the secret deep things of God, what is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking in verses 14 through 16 about who really are the, the recipients of this wisdom from God. Um, and so wisdom, which comes by revelation uh, from God, by God's Spirit, has been sketched out. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to talk about who is it that receives that wisdom by God's Spirit. And he's going to answer it negatively. He's going to tell us who doesn't receive it. And then he's going to answer it positively and tell us who does receive it. All right? And so notice verse 14, probably just a really important verse in our understanding of the nature of man, Paul says, But the natural man does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand, because he discerned. Paul says that the natural man... Now, some of you might know that the expression is more literally, the soulish man, okay? Uh, from the word, it's an adjectival form of the term uh, psuche, which we get the word soul, all right? But when Paul says the soulish man or the natural man, as many of our Bible translations have, Paul's not talking here about a weak or carnal Christian, Nor is Paul giving us somehow the basis for understanding man as body, soul, and spirit. By natural man or soulish man, the only thing Paul is conveying is an unbeliever. That's all. So the natural man, or the soulish man, is simply the person who does not have the Spirit of God. Now, make sure that you understand this. Paul's perspective is simple. If you don't have the Spirit of God, Romans 8, 9, you don't belong to Christ. Okay, So there is no such thing as a category of a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit of God. Okay? The Spirit of God indwells every single believer without exception. Okay, So when Paul says the soulish man or the natural man, he's talking about the man without the Spirit, which means in Pauline terminology, an unbeliever, a person who is lost a person who belongs uh, exclusively to this age and his only existence is marked by a natural physical existence now what does paul say about the natural man he says very clearly he does not welcome now new american standard says does not accept but the the word is stronger than just accept, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Um, if, if I say um, accept, you, you might think that that word could be something like acknowledge, right? Um, if, if I say to you, um, um, you know, Donald Trump won New Hampshire, and you go, yeah, it's that's that's a fact. I have to learn how to accept. Okay, I am not. You're not saying um, that's something that I am warmly and enthusiastically embracing. You're just saying I have to acknowledge it. That's not what Paul's talking about here. So the word "accept" is is actually, I think, it is too weak. The word uh, actually ha- is used often in the New Testament. Frequently, it's used in terms of receiving a house guest. In the Gospels, it is uh, sometimes used as those uh, when Jesus Jesus was welcoming the children to Himself. So, uh, uh, quite a good um, uh, idea would be uh, to warmly welcome. Um, the Greek lexicon says to indicate approval and conviction by thoroughly accepting something. So you're, you're you're embracing it to yourself. So what Paul's saying is that the unbeliever does not have the ability to personally embrace the things of the Spirit. The unbeliever does not have the ability nor the capacity to welcome the things of God. Okay? Now, um, the Bible teaches us very clearly that the reason the natural man or the unbeliever doesn't welcome the things of the Spirit of God uh, has to do with his own reason, with his own thinking, with his own worldview, with his own perspective, and the Bible would tell us that uh, that it's darkened. Right? I mean, think about what Paul's already said in, in 1 Corinthians. What is the message of the cross to those who are perishing? It's foolishness, right? It's foolishness. So those who are perishing, that is those who are lost, look at the message of the gospel, and they think that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Okay? Um, repeatedly, Paul actually makes this point. I had all, uh, you know, First Corinthians 1, 18, 21, 22, 23, 2, 8. And Paul goes on. Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. What happens? They did not thank God nor honor God as they should, and their reason became darkened. Okay? Their reason became darkened. Of course, Paul also tells us that that the flesh is not able to... uh, Those who live according to the flesh are not able to submit themselves to the law of God. There is, in other words, for the unbeliever, the one who's controlled by the flesh, there's not only an unwillingness to embrace God's law, there is an inability to embrace God's law. Why? Because they actually are living... ...in direct opposition to God. They cannot submit to God. This is why back in in Romans chapter 1... ...what you have with, um, with a view of fallen man... ...is that man is constantly doing what? Even though he knows the truth, right? Even though he knows the truth deep inside... ...because of the witness of creation, natural revelation... ...what is he doing? He's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. This is what the natural man does. He suppresses the truth... If, if you meet some college kid that says, you know what, uh, uh, listen, I need to take a semester off because I'm searching for the truth. Um, they're lying. They just want to go on vacation, all right? They just want to get out of school. There are, according to Paul, no truth seekers. Outside of those who are being drawn by the Spirit, the natural man doesn't go seeking the truth. But what he does do, because we're irrepressibly religious, is the natural man, in the midst of suppressing the truth in his unrighteousness, okay, what he does is he exchanges the truth of God for a lie, and because he is an irrepressible worshiper, will worship the creation and his gods of his own imagination, all the while he is rejecting the true and living God. You have to remember that when you're talking to an unbeliever. You have to remember that you're talking to somebody who has a darkened understanding. This is exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19 about uh, that former life that the Ephesians and us uh, used to live, and we became darkened in our understanding. And so uh, our minds have been affected by the fall. Our minds, our ability to reason, our ability to think has been affected by sin. So I have I have certain um, mental propensities. Uh, for instance, John chapter 3 and verse 19. What do I love, darkness or light? I, I love darkness. By nature, I love darkness. I don't want to come to the light. Okay. And so the Bible teaches us that the natural man does not embrace, does not welcome the things of the Spirit of God. And then Paul says this. He says, for their foolishness to him. Now, Paul has already repeatedly said that, of course, to the, to the Gentiles, the gospel, is, the cross is foolishness. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's a scandal on. And, uh, and so here he reiterates the sustained argument from chapter 1. Those that are natural, those who are without the Spirit, they hear the gospel and they think this is absolutely ridiculous. Think about Paul in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. He's dealing with the philosophers. When do they actually start scoffing at him? When he brings up the resurrection, you got to be kidding! Resurrection? Give me a break! Ah, well, we'll listen. We'll listen to your silliness later. That's the way that the world responds to our message. And and the important thing is is that we have to understand that there is in fact a sort of a cultural Christianity that um that you know, where you've got large groups of people that go to church and would say they're a Christian and and they they have a moral system that is based on a Judeo-Christian value system. But when it comes right down to it, Christianity is not a cultural phenomenon. It is a historical reality of a crucified Messiah who has been raised up from the dead. And when you push that, when you push that, that's when people begin to get uneasy and begin to think that you're basically an idiot. Okay. You know, you can talk about God all you want. You can talk about religion generically. And people are fine with that. But start talking about the Son of God who came into this world to die on the cross for our sins, to pay a penalty that we could never pay and that whom God raised up physically from the dead. And one of these days will return to judge both the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. And that's where you lose people. I don't know if I should repeat this from Calvin or not. But... It's in my notes, so I'll go ahead. Calvin said, faced with God's revelation, the unbeliever is like an ass at a concert. A donkey, of course. No appreciation for the music, doesn't know what it's hearing, and all it can do is rudely interrupt. Now, why does Paul say, the natural man doesn't embrace the things of God, their foolishness to him, and then notice the next reason. And he's not able to understand. So you have to understand it's, um, it's always a, a matter of both willingness and ability and by the way, lack of ability never um, never removes the culpability of our unwillingness. In other words, we're always responsible for our unwillingness. And inability doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't somehow uh, negate our responsibility. And so Paul says they don't want to embrace the things of the Spirit of God. They're not able to understand them. Now, we have to think about this for a minute because... I don't take Paul to mean that an unbeliever cannot cognitively understand the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. Okay? Um so if you if you took um you know uh Richard Dawkins, for instance, and asked him, can you explain what Christians believe? Uh, Richard Dawkins could probably say, "Uh, yeah, those those silly, silly Christians think that uh, there's a God who created all things and he sent his son into this world to die on the cross for our sins, was raised from the dead, and uh, by trusting in him you have eternal life. Okay. So, I mean, an unbeliever, an atheist actually could, could articulate the fundamental truths of the Christian faith. It's not as if the unbeliever goes, I, what, I wonder what they mean, die on a cross. I wonder what they mean by resurrection. Okay. It's not that the unbeliever has no uh, ability to have a, a cognitive awareness of these truths, but, but what they, what they cannot do is they cannot understand the truth, see the truth, in a way that they see how it directly impacts them and their need of it. In fact, ironically, and this is something that has always baffled me, some of the best biblical scholars throughout history have been people that have not been believers. Believers. Some of the most outstanding exegetes of Scripture have been people that don't believe it. They, they know grammar, they know syntax, they know history, they know all of the, the scholarly disciplines required to, to go and interpret the Bible, and yet at the end of the day, even though they may be very accurate in their, uh, in, in their academic scholarship regarding the Word of God, they ultimately don't know what they're talking about. And the reason they don't know ultimately what they're talking about is because they cannot see that this is not just simply a matter of uh, identifying the fact that a certain group of people historically believed that uh, a Jewish Messiah died on the cross and paid the penalty for their sins. What they can't see is that he came into this world for me, to rescue me. to to be delivered over from my transgressions, to be raised up for my justification. And so it's foolishness, and they're not able to understand. And then Paul says the final reason, because they are, notice, spiritually discerned. Now, I wanted last week. I gave a big caution on the way that we understand this word "spiritual," because we use the word "spiritual" and 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 in contemporary usage, the word "spiritual" is used in a way that is absolutely foreign to what Paul's talking about. Okay. When Paul says they're spiritually discerned, he's what he's saying is they're discerned through the Spirit. That is the Holy Spirit. Okay. And by the way, this word discern is going to be used three times in two verses, Now, what's interesting about this word discern is that in Paul's writings, it's only used in 1 Corinthians. Now, it's used 10 times, in 1 Corinthians, but it's only used in 1 Corinthians, which is interesting, and, and um, that might indicate that it was a Corinthian term, but the idea of discern is to engage in careful study, to examine, to examine with the view of making a decision, uh, making a judgment, calling into account, and so that's the idea of, of discernment, and so Paul says that that, that the the natural man, the man without the spirit, has absolutely no way to, to, make, uh, to make judgments and findings and, and examinations about the truth of God. He, he, he just can't do it. You see, here, here's the amazing thing is that, is that um, does this book have history in it? Yeah. Is, is it written in a historical context? At multiple historical contexts, right? Um, is this book uh, literature? Of course it is. Of course it is. And different kinds of literature, right? I mean, Genesis is different than Proverbs, and Proverbs is different than Romans, and Romans is definitely different than the Song of Solomon, right? Okay. And so you have different kinds of literature, and so you've got history, you've got literature, um, you, you've got a you've got a book. But here's here's the amazing thing: is that the ultimate author of this book isn't Moses and Samuel and David and and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Paul and Peter and so forth. The, the ultimate author of this book is the Spirit of God Himself. And the reality is, is that you can't understand the message of the author unless you know the author. It's not that hard. If you've ever read a book by somebody that you've heard preach or that you know, when you're reading, don't you hear that person? So, every time I read something by Lloyd-Jones, I hear this wonderful Welsh accent and rolling R's and long drawn out words. And I read it like that. Not out loud, but in my head. In a way that's even more heightened than that, when you have the Spirit of God, you have the author of the book. And you hear his voice in the scriptures in a way that the unbeliever simply can never do. He can never hear God's voice through the scriptures because he's void of having the author indwell him. Now, Paul then says something that is Well, let's just say it's open to grave misinterpretation. Here's here's my translation. But the man of the Spirit discerns all things, and he himself is discerned by no one. Now, we might want to throw the word examine in instead instead of discern. So, the man of the Spirit examines all things. And he's examined by no one. Now, of course, New American Standard says, he who is spiritual. And and, and again, you know what we do with that. We actually fall right into the trap of bad Corinthian theology by thinking that Paul must be talking about somebody that is spiritually elite. No, when Paul says, but he who is spiritual, all he's saying is, he who has the spirit. That's all. It's Not some special class of Christian says, he who has the Spirit. What is he who has the Spirit, what, what is he able to do? <laughs> Notice, he discerns all things. Now, <clears throat> this is obviously in contrast to the natural man, right, who can't understand, doesn't embrace, doesn't, doesn't know. But you can't take this statement out of context, can you? you might end up with some really weird ideas. The spiritual man discerns everything, right? Is that open to abuse? Yeah. You see, you know what, Arnie? Because I'm spiritual, I can tell you exactly what's wrong with you, right? Let me begin, yeah, this is going to take a while, right? So, you know, so let let me just tell you. So, obviously, this can be abused by the idea of spiritually elite people, right? Paul's not saying that the person who has the Spirit now automatically has incredible insight into absolutely everything. If you put an algebra problem in front of me, I can guarantee you the Holy Spirit would not help me. I promise. If you put, it doesn't matter what kind of math it is. It could be geometry. The spirit of God is not going to say, dummy, don't you remember that from high school? Let me help you. No, it's it's not like I get to discern all things. It's, you know, if 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 you put uh um uh you know Calvin's Institutes in French in front of me, the Spirit of God is not going to give me insight into knowing what it says unless, of course, I have an English parallel edition. So this is not saying somehow that the Holy Spirit gives you discernment into insight into all different kinds of things, but most definitely in context, there is this idea that all things most definitely refers to the work of God in Christ for our salvation and knowing Christ, as the wisdom of God, gives a Christian a worldview and a biblical perspective that does, in fact, give him insight that an unbeliever does not have. With you, says the psalmist, is the fountain of life, and in your light we see light. In your light we see light thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word of God actually brings us a, a perspective on life and, and an illumination, an illumination on, on who we are. An illumination on who made us, what he requires of us. An illumination on what he has provided for us and for our salvation. An illumination on the difference between righteousness and wickedness and truth and error. That's what the spirit of God does for us through the word of God. And so we do have, and and, and it's not as if, it's not as if, Somehow, we are infallible in our perspectives, but we are illumined in our perspectives, at least when we're thinking biblically. Now, is it possible for Christians not to think biblically? Well, chapter 3, Paul's going to nail the Corinthians for being more like natural men than those who have the Spirit it's very possible for christians to um to as it were revert back to a wisdom of this world kind of thinking but i think what paul's saying is that if you have if you have the spirit you have the ability to actually have a, a discernment and insight into the most important things of life who made you What else did God make? All things. Why did God make you and all things, kids? Do you know the answer to that? Yeah. What? For His own glory, it's the Children's Prove It Catechism. Okay. By the way, to know those answers and to truly know those answers as truth gives you a perspective on life that is far more solid and far more enduring than anyone who teaches at Harvard. Think about it. Think about it. And so, Walter Kaiser says, now the Spirit's ministry is one of aiding the believer to apply to see the value, worth, and significance of a text for his own person, situation, and times. But the natural man has or wants none of this help. Accordingly, we must not confuse this activity of the Holy Spirit. His work does not offer the believer a shortcut, which avoids the perspiration of grammatical, syntactical, historical, cultural, and theological exegesis. In other words, the uh, the idea that you have the spirit doesn't mean that automatically the spirit of God is going to say, "Well, now that I live inside of you, you don't have to work." That would be an abuse. The Spirit of God expects us to do what? To study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Spirit of God blesses the seeking of wisdom in the word, seeking for it like treasure, as uh, Proverbs 2 tells us. Now, here's the other part. And he himself is discerned or examined by no one. So Arnie comes up to me, sorry, Arne, but just your night. Arnie says, brother, I want to I talk to you. Um, you know, uh, the way that I saw you treat your wife the other night wasn't very Christian, and it's really bothered me. And I turn around and I say, brother, hold it. I'm spiritual, and I am discerned by no one. Would that be a good use of this text? No, it would not be a good use of this text, right? It is not as if this, the idea is, is that somehow we, if you say, I got the spirit, stop judging me. I've got the spirit, don't say anything to me, don't reprove me, don't correct me. Gordon Fee again, he says, here's another sentence that taken out of context has suffered much in the church. There are always those who consider themselves full of the Spirit in such a way as to be beyond discipline or the counsel of others. Such a reading of the text is an unfortunate travesty, since these people are usually among those most needing such discipline. One commentator says this is often a proof text for either anarchy or tyranny. Unbelievers, Paul says, cannot examine believers. That's, that's the point of the passage, by the way. It's not, it's not that uh, he is above correction or discipline. The idea is he himself is discerned by no one. That is, just as sure as the unbeliever cannot discern anything, he certainly cannot discern the believer. So the one who deems the cross as foolishness and the one who is only a part of this age cannot understand or discern the people who belong to the age to come and have the spirit of God. Have you ever had, maybe like an unbelieving family member, get on your case for something that you do out of biblical conviction and you're trying to explain why we do this trying to explain why we we've made this choice for our family or the the reason why we why we do things this way and and there is absolutely no sense whatsoever that they they have any understanding what you're talking about, and they just think that you're absolutely terrible. I'll just give an example. It's not a very good example, but it's one that pops into my mind. So when, uh, when our kids were, were born, we decided very clearly, um, you know what, we're not going to teach our kids that there is a santa claus okay well my goodness you would have thought when certain family members found out why, why would you abuse your children like that i mean i mean you you're you're robbing them of joy and wonderment. And would be like, no, we're lying to them. No, you can't look at it that way. Well, why not? Why, why focus on some mythical character? And boy, I tell you what, it was, there was no convincing anybody that this was the right thing to do. None. Now that's just a minor example but moral issues come up and you feel you have to make a stand, you have to make a a decision based on conviction and then you try to explain that to unbelievers around you. They They have no ability whatsoever to understand what you're talking about. I could give other examples, but I think you probably, probably can think of some on your own. You see... A profane and worldly person doesn't know anything about holiness. But a holy person does, in fact, understand the depths of evil. Right? And so, again, we're not infallible, and at many times, sometimes we're gullible, But we have insight into the word and thus we have insight into ourselves and into people, behavior, this world because of the spirit of God. And by the way, we should not expect the world to understand, nor should we expect the world to somehow concede our point. But we also need to be prepared to stand firm on the clear convictions of the Word of God. Case in point, I've got Genesis 19 coming up here pretty soon. As soon as we get through 20 or 30 more sermons on the Abrahamic covenant, we'll be moving on. And we'll get to Genesis 19. You know it's in Genesis 19, right? Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, we live in a day where people don't understand why God would judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And we need to make a decision. Are we going to cave in to culture or are we going to stand firm on the word of God? There's only one safe place to be, and it's firm on the Word of God. So, Paul then quotes Isaiah 40 in verse 13. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord, who shall counsel him? And, of course, it's a rhetorical question from Isaiah 40, isn't it? And, and, And what's the answer to this rhetorical question? Who has known the mind of the Lord and who shall counsel him? Implied answer, nobody, nobody. There's not a human being that's been able to plumb the depths of the mind of God. There's no no human being that God says, you know what? Oh, you know, maybe I should retain that person as a consultant. I don't care how smart you are. God doesn't need your brains. You might know more about a given subject than anybody else on the planet, and you still don't know more than God. And so, who, who, who's going to say, hey, Lord, I'll, I'll give you counsel? By the way, in the Bible, when people try to give counsel, it usually doesn't turn out very well. Job is a case in point. Now, what's interesting is that Paul turns around and he doesn't just say emphatically, well, nobody, he turns around and he says, but we have the mind of Christ. And so, see, look at the way this works. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who shall counsel him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now, if you ask me, this is one of the most marvelous and and yet astonishing statements that you could imagine. if, if. You didn't know this verse was here, and I were to say to you today, uh, so, do you have the mind of Christ? What would be your first initial reaction? <laughs> Come on, fess up. <laughs> no. No, I don't. I mean, and yet, Paul turns around and he says, you've got the mind of Christ. Why can he say that? Well, first of all, because if you have Christ, you have the wisdom of God, right? Uh, but but there's more to it than that, okay? There's more to it than just, you've embraced the message of the cross, you have Jesus, Jesus is the wisdom of God. That's true, but there's there's something to it that's, that, that, that's a little deeper than that, and that is that when we come to, to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God indwells us, there is, because of our union with Christ by the Spirit, there is, um, there is a vital connection that we have with Jesus in such a way that Paul is able to say, but have this mind or attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians 2, five. In, in other words, because you have Christ, because you have his spirit, you are now in the place to have the mind of Christ. In fact, it is actually already yours. The question is whether you will employ it or not. And so, so what does it look like? Well, one, one commentator puts it like this, and I, I love this. He says it's to have a cruciform mind. Cruciform is the idea of shaped by the cross. You have a mind that's been shaped by the cross. And so when Paul says, have this mind or this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul then goes on to actually give us one of the most profound Christological passages in the entire New Testament. And he goes on to say, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or hung on to tightly, but he emptied himself by becoming a servant and and, um, uh, pouring himself out to the point of death, Even the death of the cross. And so, what does it mean to have this mind or this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus? It is to have a um, a humble mind. Humbling oneself would be the mind of Christ. Denying self would be the mind of Christ. Giving oneself up for others would be the mind of Christ. Serving others and putting others ahead of ourselves would be the mind of Christ. When, when, when Jesus comes into our lives, The very one who said the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give us life a ransom for many. The spirit of the one who said that dwells in us. To have the mind of christ is is, is to be able to um, to look at a situation to look at a person and and out of a sense of love, put that other person ahead of ourselves and to have the mind of Christ in such a way that we 're willing to deny self and put somebody ahead of ourselves by the way, that is not natural the, there's, there's no baby that comes into this world with the idea, you know what, I'm here to serve. <laughs> right? I'm here to serve. As they grow, they could have the best parents in the whole world, the most loving, serving parents in the whole world. And you know, they, they would grow up and their, their conclusion to life would not be, I'm here to serve because other people are more important than me. By nature, what we say is, serve me. I'm worth it. Serve me. I think I'm awesome. Serve me. I am more important than you. Serve me. That's your job. And to have the Spirit of God inside of us liberates us. From being captivated by self. And to have the mind of Christ liberates us to be able to say, my wife is more important than I am. My kids are more important than I am. The people at church are more important than I am. I don't have to be the most important person. I don't have to be the center of attention. I can actually humble myself. Jesus actually humbled himself. An amazing thing, the eternal Son who had no cause for humility. Think about that. The Son of God had no cause for humility. Do you have any cause for humility? Do you have any cause to be humble? Absolutely. In fact, would you not say that we have far more cause? To be humble than to be proud. And yet, what do we find our hearts gravitating towards? Pride? Me first? Paul says, you've got the mind of Christ. Now... How relevant was this for the Corinthian congregation? Well, it was huge because remember, here's this church that's divided and, 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 and these divisions actually just reveal that they weren't living in a Christian way by the power of the Spirit. They weren't living out as if they had the mind of Christ they were they were spiritual elites they were uh, better than everybody else they had they had their hierarchy of importance and and uh, i jabber in tongues more than all of you and so uh, i'm greater you're lesser they had in- completely imbibed the spirit of the world and yet they were called into spiritual existence by the word of the cross and they're supposed to embody the message of the cross in their relationships which means they were supposed to put on the mind of Christ so when we're insistent on our own ways when we're insistent on our own rights when we are when we are seeking to put others down and elevate ourselves We are thinking with the wisdom of this world, and the apostle tells us you have the mind of Christ. The spirit of God lives in you. Well, three brief points of conclusion. One, on receiving the word of God. So, as Paul's talking in this text, you begin to realize that when it comes to receiving the things of God, when it comes to receiving his word, there's really only two possibilities. Acceptance or rejection. Those are the only two possibilities. I was thinking about this this afternoon because you you find so many people today that will say, um, well, I accept part of it. Okay? So I'm good with what the Bible says about A, B, and C, but I I don't like this, you know... X, Y, Z stuff, okay? So, I believe the Bible, I just don't believe all of it. And so, let me just ask, is is that actually accepting the authority of God's word or rejecting the authority of God's word? It's actually rejecting the authority of God's word. Imagine, imagine that you were a slave on a plantation and the master came out and he had a list of things that you were commanded to do. There are ten things, here you go. And the slave takes it and looks at it and says, okay, well, I'll do, I'll do all the odd numbers. Okay? He's not partially accepting the master's word. He's actually rejecting it for the very simple reason that the minute you engage in selectivity, you're the authority, not God. If you think that you get to pick and choose what you like and what you don't like, you're the authority. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you've ended up choosing because you're the authority and you're rejecting the word of God. And so we we receive the things of the spirit of God. Second, natural inability. The fact is, is that outside of God working in us, we're not going to understand, we're not going to know. When it comes to God's wisdom, when it comes to God's truth, these are things that are revealed by the Spirit, and we don't have the natural capacity to embrace and welcome God's truth. It's It's not within our ability to accept what it says about me. It's not within my natural capacity to accept what it says about God. And about right and wrong and truth and error and how to be right with God. And so the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is um, what we would say is the, the, the sine qua non, the without which nothing of embracing the truth of God. You cannot accept the truth of God without the Holy Spirit. so there are people that sit in church for years and years and years and they're sitting there with hearts of stone blinded minds they like a few things here and there that the preacher might say and has a few songs here and there that remind them of their childhood and church is okay it's a good way to kill an hour on a sunday And yet they sit there as dead as a stone. What they need is not more education. What they need is not a bigger Bible. What they need is not the right study Bible. What they need is the Spirit of God. Finally, true spirituality. (laughs) Be leery of the word spirituality, by the way, okay? (laughs) Okay. Let's not fall prey to the very theology that Paul's trying to debunk here. Gordon Fee says, being spiritual does not lead to elitism. It leads to a deeper understanding of God's profound mystery. Redemption through a crucified Messiah. How do you know you're growing in the faith? Jesus becomes more precious to you. How do you know you're growing in the faith? The gospel becomes clearer to you. How do you know you're growing in the faith? Your roots go down deeper and deeper into the foot of Calvary. That's how you know. That's how you know. There is no spiritual growth beyond the cross. There is only spiritual growth as you drill down deeper and deeper at the foot of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us the mind of Christ. We thank you so much for what you've provided for us by your spirit. And we pray for your help. Father, we pray that you would would, um, inoculate us against the errors of the Corinthians. We pray that you would keep us humble. We pray that you would keep us anchored to the cross. We pray, Father, that, um, that we would understand what it means to have Christ's mind in us by your Spirit. We pray, Lord, even in our interactions tonight and the rest of this week, that those interactions would be shaped by the cross. Thank you for revealing yourself to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. To receive a copy of this or other messages, call us at area code 775 782 6516 or visit our website gracenevada.com